we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word as the orchestra and choir have led us so beautifully to consider the grandeur and the glory of God as we look into His Word through the teaching and preaching of God's Word. We want to hear and see His glory and His grandeur, His faithfulness. Exodus chapter 25 will be our guide this morning as we continue in our series as we're journeying through the book of Exodus together as a congregation. I ask you a question, what would you deem the most remarkable building ever constructed? I mean, what comes to mind? The most memorable, remarkable buildings ever constructed. Maybe the Colosseum in Rome comes to mind. Taj Mahal comes to mind. Maybe the Acropolis in Athens maybe comes to mind. Maybe Westminster Abbey, the Eiffel Tower. Maybe the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. These are some things that might come to mind. I I want us this morning to answer that question definitely. I want us to answer that question definitely of what is the most remarkable building ever constructed. Now, it is a structure that cannot be visited today. So you're not going to be able to leave this sermon and our worship time together and go sign up for a 10-day excursion and guided tour of this structure here. It was a temporary structure built for a specific people, for a specific purpose. And it's a lofty claim, but I stand by it, that the most significant structure ever constructed was the actual tabernacle of God that we read about in the book of Exodus. Now, it's not large nor impressive by human standards. And frankly, it wasn't large or impressive by ancient Near Eastern standards either. The tabernacle could fit comfortably and easily within our existing sanctuary right here. And so the impressiveness of it, the beauty of it, and the richness of it lies in the fact that this is the only building ever designed by God Almighty himself and designed according to his plan. It is the most important object lesson ever constructed because it shows us the character of God, the grandeur of God, and it shows us the way of salvation. One pastor said it this way, the tabernacle is the only building ever constructed upon this earth, which was perfect from its beginning and outset in every detail and never again needed, see this, never again needed attention, addition, or alteration. Why? Because God himself was the architect. It is probably the most comprehensive, detailed revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, and the plan of salvation in the entire Old Testament. Let's get our bearings here. In Exodus chapter 5, we begin the blueprint for the tabernacle. The blueprint of the tabernacle is going to run from Exodus 25 through Exodus 31. And then in Exodus 35, we have the actual execution of the project, so the construction. So you see even the significance of how many chapters are devoted in the book of Exodus to the blueprint and the construction of the tabernacle. Now, whose idea was it? Was it the Israelites, as they've been set free from Egyptian captivity, wandering in the wilderness saying, God, everybody else has something like this. The Egyptians had it. The other nations have it. What about us? And the answer to that is no. Uh, We see in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, the origination of this idea of the tabernacle lies in God's grand design himself. And let them make me a sanctuary, we read, that I may dwell in their midst 
exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. I mean, every construction project, every construction project that is, that is, is worthy of your time, worthy of your resources, it starts with a really good plan. No experienced builder is going to set out on a job without a careful set of drawings to guide. And what we have here in the Bible is, is that the tabernacle has God as its architect. And simultaneously, the tabernacle has God as the general contractor. So the, this tabernacle is built to the specifications of God himself, overseen by God himself here to reflect the character of God and to display to the Israelites then how they could be in a right relationship with him. The purpose was really clear. The purpose of the tabernacle was to show the Israelites, I have not left you. I am with you. I am with you so much that I am going to dwell in this tent that we will know to be the tabernacle here. It is a testimony to the Israelites that their God was not an absentee father who jailbreaks them from the uh, tyrannical grip of Pharaoh just to leave them wandering in the wilderness by themselves. That's not the case. God is showing them, I am with you. I'm with you so much that you can look at the very tent where I am dwelling and meeting with Moses. You can imagine a six-year-old girl, young boy, the dark of night not being able to sleep, turning over, looking to his or her mother saying, hey, are we sure God is still with us? Are we sure God didn't leave us and that he's back in Egypt there? Are we sure that he's still with us? You know what that mom would say to her daughter? You know what that mom would say to her son? Hey, look over there. Do you see that tent? That's God's tent. That is the very tabernacle where God himself dwells. It is the very place that God is walking with his people and will be with his people. Now, all that's well and good. To be able to look back historically and to be able to see the specifications and the furniture and the linen and the architectural design of this structure that was built for the specific people, a specific place. And we say, what's the big deal? Well, when we look at the tabernacle, you need to understand that the tabernacle for us as Christians shows us the beauty of the living, breathing, walking tabernacle. What do I mean by that? Well, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Old Testament was written in what language? Well, there's a little bit of it in Aramaic, but the predominant language of the Old Testament was the language of Hebrew. So all that we're reading right here would have been originally written in Hebrew, 3rd century B.C., 2nd century B.C., the Hebrew Old Testament Bible begins to be translated into what language? Greek. We have a title for that. What's that title? That is the Septuagint. So the, the, the Bible that many of the New Testament writers are drawing upon, like John, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I say all of that as a background for you to look back, look on that screen, look in your Bible. That word dwelt is a really important word. That word dwelt is the same word in the Old Testament for what word? Tabernacle. 
the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the living, breathing tabernacle. Jesus loves us so much that he pitched his tent in our midst. God the Father cares for you so much. God the Father desires a relationship with you so much that his son would come to this earth and dwell in our midst, pitch his tent to show us his character and show us the way to salvation. Jesus is the true tabernacle. So everything that we see in the tabernacle, they're not just random facts, random artifacts. We as Christians, we look through the tabernacle in the Old Testament to see the true, lasting, complete revelation of the tabernacle, which is the word who has become flesh and moved in. As Eugene Peterson in his message paraphrases, moved into our neighborhood. So let's look at this passage here. Now listen, uh, you see the scripture references there in the Together Bulletin. We're not going to be able to get to all of that. So I just want you to get a taste. We can't look at all the linens. We can't look at all the furniture pieces. We can't look at all the details architecturally of the tabernacle. But we can get a little taste by looking at three of these objects, three of the furniture pieces that point us backwards but point us inward to be able to bask in the glory of Jesus. So first, let's look at the Ark of the Covenant. That's God's mercy toward us is what we see. Exodus 25, starting in verse 10, follow along as we read the specifications of the Ark of the Covenant. So God says to Moses, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on the four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim. Fancy word. What does it mean? Angels. Two angels of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces. Do you see this? Their faces are turned one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. The mercy seat is on the top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you there. Verse 22, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment of the people of Israel. So are the specifications for the ark of the covenant. Now we as Christians, we read all of these details, not with just an intellectual curiosity to know what, kind of historically what, what happened here, but we read it spiritually. We read it with the eyes of faith, 
understanding that, that this shows us something deeper. Now, if you're of a certain age here, all the Ark of the Covenant talk, you, you kind of hear it with the Indiana Jones uh, soundtrack going on. I don't know how many of you remember Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I had uh, an, an original iteration of this sermon has a lot of Harrison Ford illustrations to it right here. But needless to say, I felt like that might be a little distracting. And also I realized that this is 2023. That movie came out in 1981 or 1982. So if this was the year 2000, I would be referencing a movie from 1960. I feel very old. That's what that means right there. So it's not as a contemporary of a movie as I might feel that it is here. So all of that stuff about the Ark of the Covenant, we put it to the side here and we realize that what God reveals to us about the Ark of the Covenant is first things first. The Ark of the Covenant, it stands out in importance. This is the very place where God would descend to speak with Moses. It's the only piece of furniture that's in the most holy place, the innermost part of the uh, the sanctum of the tabernacle there. Do you've got some uh, possessions at home that are heirlooms, things that are very precious to you? Do you have some jewelry? Do you have some fine china that maybe was passed down from one generation to the next? I would imagine, let's just imagine if that's just fine china here, you're not pulling that out, eating pizza off of it like it's paper plates. I mean, there's something about it. You don't don't just pass it around. You don't don't pull it out often. You you want to protect it a little bit here because there's something that that is kind of important and unique about it and you treat it in that kind of way. Notice all the details about the poles and the rings for one purpose. Don't touch this thing. Don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And that's really important. And it's not hyperbolic. It isn't like God is saying in this moment, hey, I just want to encourage you. Don't get too close to it. You're going to, you're going to have all your fingerprints on it. No, there is something so holy about this place. It's the very place where God will descend and talk to Moses so that when people touch it, they die. Well, just take my word for it here. 2 Samuel chapter 6, David and the men, they're moving the ark. The oxen stumbles. And if you remember, you've got a priest, Uzzah, who, who dives sort of to catch it, like a, to, to make sure the ball doesn't fumble to the ground right here. And he reaches out, he touches it, and he dies. So there, there is something that is wholly unique because the very presence of God would descend upon the ark of the covenant here. It is the place of the mercy seat. The mercy seat is is the place where the very high priest would come on the day of atonement and sprinkle blood over the mercy seat to bring sinful Israelites and a holy God into reconciliation with one another. This is signified by what is surrounding the Ark of the Covenant. We've got these two angels, cherubim. On Wednesdays at 11, Wednesdays at 6, I'm walking through angels and demons and Satan. So this is very fresh on my mind. We took a couple weeks ago just to talk about cherubim. Cherubs, in our mind, are little cute, cuddly angels with little wings. That's not what cherubim are. Cherubim, we discover in Genesis chapter 3, they're the warrior angels who stand guard outside of the entrance to the Garden of Eden so lest no one go back into it. And so these aren't little cute, cuddly angels. They're, they're God's messengers, warriors that are depicted here. Why? Because this is the very presence of God that is depicted in this place and the very work of God right here. And what are these angels doing? They're bowing down because this is a place of holiness. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? 
we have this repetition two times of what I'm going to give you, what I'm going to give you, what I'm going to give you. Two tablets is what Moses is going to receive, the Ten Commandments. Hebrews chapter 9 also tells us there's two other objects that are very important to the Israelites' history that are going to go into the Ark of the Covenant. One is manna and one is Aaron's rod. What are all three of these possessions? The Ten Commandments, manna, Aaron's rod. It's a reminder. I was with you. I led you faithfully. I'm going to continue to lead you. Now, as Christians, we read this and we realize that just as God is worthy of worship and just as God has made a place where sinful humans can be reconciled to him, a holy God, so that place is not the Ark of the Covenant. We, we don't have to get into uh, these kind of diplomatic uh, discussions. We don't have to go on archaeological excavations to be able to, to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant and try to bring it back to Dawson so that we can find the presence of God. No. The Ark of the Covenant, the true Ark, is Jesus himself. So the living, breathing tabernacle has dwelt in our midst and so he is the true ark. This is the way 1 John would tell us in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In the Old Testament, there's no other way for, for imperfect Israelites to be made right with a holy God. This was the way. And for us, how do we as imperfect humans come into a right relationship with God. It's not uh, behind curtain B and behind curtain C and behind this option and this option. And there's a multitude of options. He is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. He is the one, Jesus, who brings us into a right relationship with the Father. You wanna know the Father? There is a way and that way has a name and that name is Jesus. And that name of Jesus is the fulfillment of the ark because he's the true ark. Another way we could say this is, is that Jesus is the, he is, he is the high priest who performs the atoning sacrifice. But not only is he just the high priest, he is the actual sacrifice himself. And not only is he the sacrifice himself, but he is actually the place where the atonement sacrifice is made. So, so he is the priest, he is the propitiation, and he is the place and the position that salvation is found. This is amazing. It's just another way to remind you he, he is all you need. He, he has done it all. Jesus has paid it all. All to him I give. Sin has left a crimson stain that who? He washes white as snow. So the Ark of the Covenant reminds us of God's mercy to us that is shown in and through Jesus. Notice also with me the table for the bread. It's a reminder of God's provision for us. Verse 23 of chapter 25, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it. Once again, we got this repetition, pure gold, and make a molding of gold around it. Go to verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence of the table before me. So what are we doing? Find yourself. We're moving out of the most holy of places 
the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, we move right outside of it there and we've got a table made of acacia wood. It's covered in the molding of gold here. The, the construction of the table doesn't matter as much as what's holding the table. 12 loaves of bread that represent what? The 12 disciples know. What does the 12 loaves of bread represent? 12 tribes of Israel. It's just a reminder to the people of God that there is a place around this table of his presence for all 12 tribes of Israel with all their sordid history, there's a place that he's making. The, the, the bread represents that he is the one who is going to provide for them. Just as he will provide manna in the wilderness, the bread that is placed upon the table that actually in, in further chapters, you're going to see this is going to be the bread that feeds the very priest. And so this bread is this basic symbol that the provision that the Israelites need, it is found in him and him alone. So you don't have to go salivating in, in your memory, reminding yourself, boy, we ate really, really good in Egypt because the bread is with you, providing all that you need. And so it's not surprising to us that when Jesus is walking, if I told you he's the living tabernacle, He's not going to be accidental in the images that he uses, the metaphors that he uses. So there he is walking 2,000 years ago in the midst of the people. And what does he say? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. There is nothing more basic. There is nothing more basic than bread. Not just in ancient cultures. In Western cultures, what, we don't have to go back that long ago to think what happens when there's a scarcity of bread. What does that represent? I'll tell you what it represents. It, it, it can represent economic instability for a family. Widespread scarcity of bread, and that, that can mean war is on the horizon. Widespread scarcity of bread, that can mean starvation is right around the corner. Now, to have an abundance of bread, I mean, this, this means that things are good. And we've kind of moved on, but bread is the most basic of provision. And so that God would, would have 12 loaves of bread upon this table is a sign that he is the endless supply of all that they need. And that Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. Do you want to flourish in life? Do you want to have peace in life? It's not just food. All that you need is found in him. This is just a wonderful reminder. I, I remember when Daniel and I were pastoring the first church that pastored right on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And, and what was the first thing that left with the promise of a hurricane that was coming ashore? It wasn't milk. It wasn't toilet paper. I mean, you know, the first thing that was going to be bare on the shelves of Publix was bread. That's when you knew you better hunker down. It's going, it's going to get rough or you better pack up and leave. And so there can be supply chain issues. There can be runs on the grocery store and you can find yourself in exceptional circumstances even today saying, hey, I can't even find bread. But do you know what is an inexhaustible supply of all the provision that you need? Do you know that there is one who is an inexhaustible supply of the comfort that you need, the clarity that you need, the very guidance that you need for your life? Are you in a moment where you don't know exactly what to do? Do I go this way or do I go that way professionally? 
Are you in a relationship and you don't know exactly what the, what the future of that relationship is? Are you vacillating on, on what is going to be the future of myself and this company here? All of these things and so much more. Who is the one who can supply you with what you need to be able to have light and provision for the next step? Now, there's some of you that you're in the midst of grief, grief that is so real. And you've got people that love you and you've got sentiments that they're sharing, but the one who provides you true comfort is the one who is the endless supply of the provision that is symbolized in this very table of bread. He is enough. No matter what you're facing right now, the table for bread is God's provision for us. The Ark of the Covenant is God's mercy toward us. And finally, in the remaining moments that we have, I want us to to look at the golden lampstand and see God's light before us. Go back again to the passage Chapter 25, let's look at verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Do you see that repetition? Nothing but the best here, pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand of one side of it, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. So if you're picturing this, kind of think of a menorah here that is going to be the figure that you're going to be seeing out of this description. Go to verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light in the space in front of it. Its tongs and the trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all of these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. If you're ancient Near Eastern weight conversions are just not right there for you. One talent of pure gold, 75 pounds of gold. So this isn't, this isn't going down to Target and picking up some forks and spoons and knives here. I mean, this is not going to Walmart and getting a lamp here. I mean, this is, this is the best of the best in that context here to symbolize what? Well, you see it in the passage. It, it is so clear that God is light that his presence is with them, that his holiness is radiant before them. Later on, the priests are told to do one thing with these lights, keep them burning, keep them burning. Why? Because it is a symbol that God's light is unquenchable. God's light never goes out. The light's always on. He he never slumbers. His light, his holiness, it never wavers. This is your God. Again, Jesus is walking. If I told you he's a living tabernacle, we should not be surprised. Once again, when he describes who he is, he uses tabernacle language. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not be in darkness, but will have the light of light. The light of life. It's just a reminder here that that the Israelites were called to reflect his light to the nations. And we're called as Christians to shine as as bright lights, not as the originator. Think about how the moon shines. The the moon shines just as the reflection of the S-U-N, the sun, and the radiance of the beams of the sun that shine upon the moon. And the moon reflects the light from the uh, originator of, of the sun there. And so you're called to shine as the son of God and his glory and his grandeur shines in your life 
And like the moon, you don't have a, a, a originating light inside of you, but it's the spirit of God that dwells in you. Not of your own doing, but by the gift of salvation. Right? So Jesus would say, you're the light of the world. You are. I am. We are. And this is an audacious plan. Out of all the ways that God could get his message of who he is and what he has done for us, this, this is plan A. This is God's marketing strategy. You sitting in these pews, me before us here, us living lives in our neighborhoods, going to the grocery store, being on ball teams, going to work. This is God's design so that his glory and his grandeur could be seen by our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, your family members and your friends, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Five-year-old kid was with his mother. They're touring this cathedral. Imagine this Gothic cathedral with all of its beauty and ornate design. Imagine the, the windows that you see before you here, but windows top to the bottom, stained glass, with images etched into the glass. They're touring this cathedral at such a time where the, the beams of the sun are just radiating into this cathedral and they're shining through the stained glass pieces. The young boy's eyes are just transfixed. Looks all around him and he asks an obvious question to his mom. Who are these people in the windows? And she says, were they the saints of the church? And he paused and he kind of looked back and seeing the rays of the sun shine through those stained glass pieces. And he says, oh, I know what saints are. They're people that let the light shine through. And he's exactly right. Saints aren't people that are perfect in every way. A saint is a Christian who follows Jesus in such a way that the light of Jesus shines through the glass of their life so that people see the sun and the beauty of it shining in and through us. This is the beauty of God's plan. This is the beauty of God's design. You shine for him so that people may see your good works, hear the good word of your life, to be able to point them to the living tabernacle, the living tabernacle whose light never dims, whose supply church never runs out and who has paid it all, all to him we owe. Let us pray.